Welcome to this month's Drinking on the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Bill Howell, here on listener-supported public radio for the central Kenai Peninsula, KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna. As always, thanks to Recess Duty for playing us in with our theme song. We've got a couple of good interviews for you this month and some interesting features, but as always, let's start with beer news. The Brewers Association has released its 2022 Year in Beer report. At the end of 2022, there were over 9,500 breweries operating in the U.S. The two major agricultural inputs in brewing, barley and hops, are facing unprecedented challenges created by climate change. Although the 2022 harvest improved, the severe depletion of stocks in 2021 kept barley prices high in a very dynamic and changing market. 2022 hop acreage declined slightly in the U.S., while the European harvest was the worst in decades. Bleeding Heart Brewery of Palmer and the Flamingo Lounge in Seward will be holding special events over the entire weekend of Friday, February 3rd through Sunday, February 5th. Participants in the events will be Chef Eric Slater of Seward Brewing Company, the Flamingo Lounge, Bleeding Heart Brewery, NXNW Relays, and the Seward Hotel. On Friday, February 3rd, there will be a tap takeover at the Flamingo Lounge. Bleeding Heart beers will be on offer, along with dinner specials designed to pair with them, plus the crew from Bleeding Heart will be present to answer questions and talk about their beers. On Saturday, there will be a 6K run starting and ending at the Branson Pavilion in Waterfront Park. Entry fee is $20, with half the proceeds going to Seward Prevention's Coalition. Saturday evening is the Booze and Food Dinner. There will be two seatings of 50 people each at 5.45 and 8.15 p.m. Tickets are $165 per person. The meal includes a five-course handcrafted meal with signature cocktail pairings utilizing bleeding heart meads and ciders. The final event will be a recovery brunch on Sunday morning at the Flamingo Lounge, including bleeding heart beers on tap and brunch specials designed to pair with them. In addition, the Seward Hotel is offering a 20% discount if you mention Bleeding Heart Brewery. Devil's Club Brewing in Juneau will be holding its first ever beer dinner on Monday, February 13th at 5 p.m. Originally scheduled for March 2022, the brewery will finally be able to hold the dinner in its tap room. 
The dinner includes a delicious five-course meal, and each course is accompanied by a special beer pairing. Tickets are $80 each, and much of the seating is communal, so to ensure you can sit with your party, book early. Fairbanks Breweries are again celebrating Alaska Beer Week with the Fairbanks Beer Passport. A $4 donation to the Brewers Guild of Alaska gets you the passport. Visit five different locations, Hoodoo Brewing, Black Spruce Brewing, Midnight Mine Brewing, Lat 65 Brewing, and Lavelle's Taproom. During the course of the week, get your passport stamped at each and then redeem the completed passport for a commemorative sticker. The percentage of U.S. adults aged 18 and older who say they drink alcohol averaged 63% over the past two years, whereas 36% describe themselves as total abstainers. The drinking rate ticks up to 65% when narrowed to adults of legal drinking age, which is 21 and older nationwide. Since 1939, Gallup has asked Americans whether they, quote, have occasion to use alcoholic beverages such as liquor, wine, or beer, end quote, or if they are a total abstainer. Across the trend, the percentage saying they drink has dipped as low as 55% in 1958 and has risen as high as 71% in the 1970s. However, in the recent decades, the U.S. drinking rate has consistently registered near the long-term average of 63%. For many years, beer was the strong favorite of U.S. drinkers, mentioned by close to half as the alcoholic beverage they most often drink. It still leads, but by a thinner 4 percentage point margin over wine, 35% to 31%, according to the 2022 survey. Meanwhile, 30% favor liquor, a new high, and 3% have no preference. Tickets for the 2023 Frozen River Fest are now on sale from Brown Paper Tickets. This year's fest will take place on Saturday, February 18th from 4 to 8 p.m. The opening act will be the Ridgeway Rounders, and the headline band is the Derek Poppin Band. There will be over 15 breweries plus food vendors at the fest. Regular admission is $25, which gets you a commemorative glass and three drink tickets. Non-drinking tickets cost $5, and kids under 12 are admitted free. That's it for this month's beer news. Up next, we'll have an interview with Steve Ford, the treasurer of the Kenai Peninsula Brewing and Tasting Society. Find out who the fastest gun in the West is on the February 18th episode of Movie Classics, where we'll talk about Westerns. John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, Glenn Ford, Montgomery Clift. Join us, unless you're too yellow to step out into the street. Up next, Steve Ford, the treasurer of the Kenai Peninsula Brewing and Tasting Society. Hello, Steve. How are you doing today? Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Hey, I appreciate you taking the time out to come on the show. So I've kind of mentioned the Brewing and Tasting Society many times in passing over the years, but I thought it was time that maybe we had uh, somebody actually come and talk about it. So uh, why don't you give everybody the five-second or ten-second elevator pitch on the Brewing and Tasting Society? 
Sure will. Um, I believe it started in 2010 by our local uh, beer expert, uh, <laughs> Bill Howell. <laughs> So, yeah, we've been going a little over 12 years now, strong, um, many different locations. We're now currently uh, meeting at a uh, private club here off of uh, K Beach Road. Yeah, the Shriners Hall, The Shriners, yep. Yep. And uh, it's kind of open format where new people are invited, uh, welcome to come. Um, A lot of people, we've got a fair number that are brewers. Uh, and we encourage everybody to show up with the beer that they've either either made or one that they've discovered uh, commercially and wanted to bring it and have others sample it with them. And so we'll start off with just kind of a welcome. Uh, there's been about 12 to 16 people show up. And we'll, uh, it's pretty informal. We do have, uh, try to have an educational uh, portion of the meeting. Uh, we're the thing I enjoy is uh, experience is seeing these people that maybe aren't that familiar with beer experience new styles of beer, and it's uh, a lot of people are real familiar with starting off at the lager level with Budweiser or Coors or something along those lines, and it's pretty neat to see somebody look up from a glass of beer and say, "Wow, what was that?" And then you go in a little more detail, um, and you know, bottom line on those, wow, what was that? Usually those beers cost a little bit more than your mm-hmm. Budweiser. So, um, yeah. And so, like I said, over 12 years strong. And uh, we're going to do a, a program this coming Thursday uh, where there's uh, Beer Advocate is one of the sources we use for information. And it's where people will put in their comments about and and grade the beers that they're drinking nationwide or worldwide and so this uh coming thursday uh it's got it broken down into styles and we actually have six beers that we could buy locally that are considered top in their styles so we'll put those out for people to enjoy yeah i think the uh you know i've always enjoyed the uh the educational portions of the club meetings you know to to uh, as you say see new new people enjoy new styles uh, the other part of it that I really like is uh, it's typically pretty common for when people travel outside, they bring some beers back from wherever they visited. So the club is a great chance to sample beers from Minnesota, or Wisconsin, or Kansas, or all these places that I have absolutely no intention of ever going to, but I get to try their beers, uh, beers from there at the club, so that's pretty cool. The other thing I like about the club is the raffle that we do, so why don't you explain that to folks, because uh, I think that's great as well. Yeah, it uh, it's surprising how much it costs to put on a, a club like this uh, with just fixed costs. And one of the ways we're able to raise some money is, along with bringing a beer you want other people to sample, you might bring the same beer or something you really like, and we put it out on a table, and we ended up breaking it down into maybe four groups or three groups of six beers each. And then we hold a raffle, and uh, raffle winners get to choose one of the groupings of beer. And the money goes to pay the rent for the club that night to the Shriners, so... It's yep. it's pretty nice if you get a chance to you know for buy a ticket for five bucks and then walk home with an armload of beer for five bucks is pretty good deal so I I like that aspect of it too so let's 
spread out a little bit beyond the club. Why don't you tell everybody about how you ended up getting uh, interested in craft brewing? Well, I, I'm going to ask you the same question because okay. it, it is kind of interesting. Uh, looking back at it, um, I the first kind of craft beer that I liked was ESB um, by Ballard Brewing. And I remember sitting up at a new place that opened up at called glacier brew house <laughs> up in anchorage and there was the brewer right across the bar from me and i said i don't get this fresh beer what is this all about i prefer this esb and uh he goes give it time so here we are <laughs> 40 years later almost <laughs> and, yeah so yeah it is uh yeah and and just getting turned on to different beers from people that are more into it than i was at the time and yeah. Well, I kind of got into it. My first craft beer I ever had was uh, 1984 in the Pied Piper Bar in San Francisco. I had Anchor Steam. It was the first time I'd ever hit had a beer that was like, wow, what is this? Now, I'll admit, I had no idea what it was or what it meant because I didn't figure that out for another five years. I just knew that I really liked this Anchor Steam stuff, and anytime I had a chance to get it i was looking for it then in uh, 89 i went to a beer dinner at a, a restaurant that was hosted by a beer guy who explained all the different beers uh, i only went to that one because i couldn't afford to take my date to the wine dinner because that was much more expensive but the beer dinner was relatively cheap uh so the lady and I parted ways soon after that, but the fellow who was hosting the, the evening, Lyle Brown, he and I are still friends, and uh, he got me into craft beer, home brewing, uh, got me to join the local home brewing society, and, you know, that was 89, and I've been looking for good beer and home brewing ever since. So it's, uh, I mean, I, I mean, you can chime in here for your own opinion about what i like about beer is to me it's an affordable luxury i like a lot of things in this world that are they're they're priced above my station in life like <laughs> good single malt whiskey that goes for somewhere north of hundred dollars a bottle and you know I, I see all this uh these wines and whiskeys and things that are they're damn expensive but if you, you know, even the most expensive beer in the world is not out of reach for the average person. And there's tons and tons of really good beer that are not that expensive at all. You know, I think that's why one of the things we're blessed about here locally is to have good breweries that we can walk into and have a really good beer for, you know, not a, a ton of money yeah yep there's uh and it, i noticed uh we've got a daughter that lives down in birvana portland and i actually was down there probably in the last couple years and going through a couple of different breweries there and i looked at my wife and said you know i think i've had better up in uh, alaska we've got some breweries that are really moving into their own little niches now uh, yeah, and it's uh, it, it's interesting to see how these breweries have developed and kind of gone off into their own little segments. And locally, uh, yeah, it certainly is true here, too. We're lucky well, to have I, the choice. I'd be the first one to say I think Alaskan beer, you know, beers from Alaska 
are as good as any beer craft beers anywhere in the world some of them are without a doubt world class um you know i tell people alaska has the best beer that nobody's drunk who doesn't live here you know because we don't send a lot of it outside but when we do it tends to do extremely well in competitions and things like that i mean you look at anchorage brewing company and they're like routinely cited as you know one of the best breweries in the world and all their stuff is super hard to get and you know everybody's clamoring for it and things like that um but midnight sun has an outstanding reputation and a lot of our brewers breweries do it's just for most of them they can't be bothered to try to to send their stuff outside so we get to drink it here yeah that um you know i was looking at the top uh, beers in each style and two of them are uh, anchorage brewing that made it to the top of a couple different styles belgian ipa and barley wine Mm -hmm. and uh then in the top this is through beer advocate everybody's got their top list but through beer advocate uh anchorage brewing is in the three places in the top 17 beers on that list so but they're they're not the only game in town either there's uh Sinisher. i've been spending a little more time visiting there they're they really have brought on some different styles and one of them that i was introduced through those guys is the grisette and which is uh, i think it's a farmhouse ale so it tends to be lower alcohol it's kind of an old belgian style yeah kind of a belgian northern france that area style is where it's from yeah and i I thought this was this was probably my biggest discovery this last year when we were down at oregon we went to a place called wolves and people and it is uh it was about a 40 mile drive outside of portland and it is a farmhouse and there's rolling hills and vineyard and it's in the barn and i opened up their uh beer selection list they had four grisettes <laughs> and the only place i've ever seen a grisette out of was sinisher up here in anchorage and then they had i don't know four or five saisons another farmhouse uh ale and uh i had asked about the brewer because i had rumored that he knew my relative in juno <laughs> well they said he just left he's uh, gone over to belgium to brew so he's got got some chops down yeah, there obviously obviously yeah well, you know, we're kind of, uh, this is when this broadcast, we're going to be wrapping up uh, Alaska Beer Week. So this last week has been, it's been interesting to see all the different sort of things that people are doing uh, around the state. Uh, up in Fairbanks, they have their beer passport where they're trying to get everybody to visit all the breweries in Fairbanks during Alaska Beer Week. And in Anchorage, there's been a lot of uh, different beer dinners you know where people different restaurants or things are doing which is something that i would like to see more happen particularly in this local area um we were kind of on an upswing until covid came in and flattened everything and everybody but with particularly with the change to the beer laws that's going to go into effect next january which will allow people with kitchens to get uh, restaurant eating place licenses instead of using their brewery tap room license so 
What I'm saying is that license would allow them to serve beers other than their own if they're a restaurant. I really am hoping that we can see some of the places, whether it's Kenai River Brewing or um, the Flats or some of the other restaurants, Michael, some of the other restaurants around here to really move into the idea of having beer dinners and having, you know, I mean, I know you've done a lot yourself at your house with your friends and things like that to have people over and pair beer specific beers with specific dishes and i really think there's a market there that a savvy restaurateur around here should think about glomming onto particularly during the winter when things are slow i mean yeah maybe you don't need to do them when you've got tourists all over the place june through september but in January, February, March, if you were doing a monthly beer dinner, I think you could guarantee yourself a lot of trade. So what do you think? I, I'm all for it. Um, you know, I, I believe it's been announced that cassocks are actually moving into town off of bridge access. And uh, there's rumor of a restaurant. I would, yeah, that's what I've heard. Yeah, yeah. And I think, boy, you look at the uh, triangle of breweries we got with St. Elias and Kenai River and then cassocks. Right there's a good start. Then we have two down in Homer, uh, Homer and Grace Ridge. Well, I mean, they've kind of been constrained in the past because they yeah. can only serve their own beers, right? So it's hard to, I mean, you can do it, but, you know, it's not like you've got, people are going to be unfamiliar with what you're offering them and pairing them with it. So you have to have do all your experimenting on the food side rather than on the beer side. But if they ever get, you know, if they get a regular restaurant license, then... The, that opens the the door so it wouldn't have to just be their beers they could pair with other you know beers from around the state or something like that and uh like i said i think there's really a market there yes i've heard the same thing that they're moving down uh uh over where the uh where the canneries used to be near the near, boat, boat landing near, near the boat landing yeah. down there so uh hopefully we'll see that within a year or two because uh, they are, it would be nice to have them a little closer in. It's they're kind of a ways out. Yeah, it would be nice to uh, have a, a tap house, um, like Cafe Amsterdam used to be a big draw up in Anchorage. Yeah, uh, they had, they had multiple a beers. Wonderful cellar. Yeah. So, and, and speaking of that, we got uh, Humpies is putting on every year during Craft Beer Week. They're putting on a dinner up there, and uh, the owner of that's got an incredible cellar. And what a lot of people don't know, maybe you've touched on this in the past, but aging beer, if it's done right, uh, you know, flavors are always changing. And they pulled out some old ones. I, I would say I may have had a beer 20 years old up there that was spot on. Yeah, so. yeah. No, Billy Opinski's got a fantastic cellar that he's uh, he dips into for these things. So uh, they've uh, I've been to some of their dinners, and they were they were quite spectacular some of the things he served i remember it must have been 10 12 years ago but he served a 1990 thomas hardy ale or something it was like 20 years old been in the cellar and it was phenomenal it was uh, served it with dessert and uh, just one of those once in a lifetime things you know there's not a lot of bottles of it still around anyway and 
you get one and you taste it and you just kind of have to mark your notebook as like okay it's it's unlikely i'll ever see that one again but it was definitely uh something something pretty special yeah we um we always have that uh problem with do we want to drink this this is our last one but i've gotten to the point where this may be the last one of that one but there's always two good ones around the corner yeah so i i did visit when i was in portland hair of the dog brewery which was uh an interesting brewery it had a reputation of brewing whenever you felt like it right and we could get it up here occasionally maybe in the early 2000s and uh he just decided to fold up shop here so i was able to grab a few of those so when when you say this is the last one of a kind it really is it really is yeah apparently he didn't sell the recipes or the brewery well yeah well that's one of the nice things you know one of the reasons i keep drinking beer is uh everyone's different you know you're in a different mood or you're it's a different brewery or you know you have there's there's your regulars that you like going back to the classics those are always great but you never know there's always something new around the bend to try too so that's that's one of the nice aspects of it i think one of my surprises here a couple years ago was beer dinner up at uh talkeetna and uh they had it's kind of a comedy routine seward brewery and uh, a bleeding heart out of palmer they went together on a collaboration and it was a gosa which has got a salt factor to it and so seward their portion of the brew was to provide resurrection based seawater and the best out of palmer that they came up with was strawberry mint and rhubarb and what a combination and <laughs> never guessed that yeah some things you got to taste to believe yeah. that they'll actually go well together speaking of seward i guess next weekend their big uh bleeding heart is going to be down there doing a big two three day event i talked about it in the talked about it in the beer news earlier in the show but they're uh they're having beer dinners and a race and tap takeovers and a brunch and a deal at the hotel to stay there so uh that's uh might be something else worth checking out so you know what bill beer is fun isn't it it is fun isn't it <laughs> so and on that note we kind of got to wrap this up but let's remind everybody that if they're interested in fun with beer the Kenai peninsula brewing and tasting society meets the first thursday of every month at 6 30 p.m at the shriners hall on west poppy and everybody is welcome to drop by to check things out and without any cost uh, for the first visit or anything like that but uh if you're interested in brewing beer or tasting beer come on by and meet us at the meet us at the club yep there's uh that's people are getting a lot of advice on what to do or what not to do the next time they brew a beer so it's another benefit Alrighty. well hey steve thanks again for taking the time out to come on with us really appreciate it yeah thanks for inviting me this is Drinking on the Last Frontier, KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna. We'll be right back with our next segment. The Performing Arts Society presents Classical Guitar Through the Centuries, a concert by Alaska classical guitarist Armin Abdehozic and Thomas Talent. 7.30 p.m. Saturday, February 4th at Soldatna Christ Lutheran Church, 
tickets are $20 for adults and $10 for students, available at the door or in advance at River City Books, North Country Fair, Country Liquor, Already Read Books, and Curtain Call Consignment. In today's feature, we're going to talk about Guinness. Guinness, the iconic black pint with the creamy white clerical collar and a flash of ruby in its depths. Who doesn't know it? Who hasn't drunk it? But while Guinness is famous and consumed worldwide, half the world knows a very different kind of Guinness to the drink the other half swallows. In Ireland, the drink's original home, North America and Europe, Guinness Draft is the familiar friend to lovers of creamy stout. Served in a pint glass, it has an initial surge of bubbles that gradually settle out into the familiar deep, dark body and blonde head. In Africa and Asia, drinkers are much more familiar with an older style of Guinness beer known as Foreign Extra Stout, which comes in bottles, is almost twice as strong as Draft Guinness, and has a powerful tart flavor that's surprisingly refreshing in a hot climate. The story of Guinness is a tale of how one small and run-down brew house on a street lined with other breweries grew into what was, for a long time, the biggest brewery in the world. Many drinkers know that Arthur Guinness, the founder of the company, acquired the brewery at St. James Gate in Dublin, Ireland in 1759 when he was 35. However, the St. James Gate Brewery goes back almost a century before that. Its first known occupant was Giles Mee, who was paying hearth tax on a property at St. James Gate in 1663 and was brewing on the location by 1670. The brewery at St. James Gate passed to Mee's son-in-law, Mark Rainsford, and then to a Huguenot family of French settlers called Espinais. In 1750, the then owner, John Espinace, was thrown from his horse near Drogheda, some 30 miles north of Dublin, and, depending on which newspaper report you read, either fractured his skull or broke his neck, dying immediately. St. James Street was a popular thoroughfare with brewers, thanks to the several watercourses that ran across it down to the Liffey, Dublin's main river. As early as 1804, a city directory listed eight breweries on that street. Despite this, the St. James Gate premises appear to have remained empty for nine years after John Espinaise's death until Arthur Guinness came along in 1759 to sign his now-famous 9,000-year lease. The drinks that Dublin's breweries were making at the time were table beers and a strong, lightly hopped brown ale. However, they were suffering increasing competition from imports of English porter, the aged, well-hopped, brown, black beer that had originally been developed to appeal to the working classes of London, but which had found a market around the world. Dublin's brewers responded by brewing porters themselves from the 1760s onward. Exactly when Arthur Guinness first made a porter is not known, but he was probably doing so by 1779 when he was appointed one of the two official suppliers of ale and beer to Dublin Castle, seat of the Irish government, and definitely by 1784 when he was specifically fingered as a supplier of porter to the castle. Guinness was still making the traditional Dublin brown ale as well. 
Early in 1799, the decision was made to stop brewing brown ale completely. From then on, Guinness would be a porter and stout specialist. Arthur Guinness I died four years later in 1803, age 78, and the brewery was inherited by his second son, Arthur Guinness II. He was already brewing a special, stronger, more heavily hopped West Indian porter, which eventually developed into what is known today as foreign extra stout. By 1810, Guinness was brewing what is called a superior porter, quote, a stouter kind of porter, made only from November to May. Around the same time, Guinness began brewing an even stronger beer, extra superior porter, also known as double stout, and a third stronger than its standard country porter and with a higher hop rate. Extra superior porter was stored for five months or more to mature before being bottled the summer after it was brewed. This beer became particularly popular in Britain. By 1840, Extra Superior Porter, eventually renamed Extra Stout, made up four out of every pint brewed at St. James Gate. Helped by the success of Extra Stout, from the 1860s onward, Guinness grew and grew. It eventually dominated Ireland, made big dents in the British market, and became the largest brewery in the world. By 1890, sales were 688,000 barrels of porter a year, 99.8% of it in Ireland, 613,500 barrels of extra stout, 51% of it in Britain, and another 80,000 or so barrels of foreign extra stout. The brewery produced eight tons of excess yeast a day, which was sold for eight pounds a ton to Irish whiskey distillers. The First World War hammered beer drinkers as the British government, which still ruled Ireland, raised taxes and pushed down beer strengths to try to discourage drinking and save grain. When the war started, Guinness Porter had an original gravity of 1058, while the extra stout and foreign stout had original gravities of 1073. By the end of the war, extra stout was reduced to 1049, with the porter at 1036. Only foreign extra stout kept its original strength. One result was that in Ireland, drinkers began switching to extra stout, and Guinness Porter fell from around one-third of sales in 1913 to a little more than an eighth by the late 1920s. In 1932, Guinness decided that it needed to open a brewery in England. A site was chosen at Park Royal in northwest London, and the brewery opened in 1936, but only after the plant at Park Royal was supplied with extra stout brought over from Dublin in order to mature the new wooden fermenting vessels and vats. This was an effort to reproduce the microbiological climate the company believed was essential to give Guinness its unique flavor. During World War II, Guinness opened its second overseas brewery in the United States. In 1849, Arthur Guinness II had set up two of his nephews, Edward and John Burke, as bottlers, and their firm subsequently became the largest importer of Guinness in North America. In 1934, after Prohibition ended, Ian e. J. Burke opened a brewery in Long Island City, New York, where it brewed its own ale and stout, as well as continuing to distribute Guinness. 
The Guinness sold in the United States was foreign extra stout, still at 1073 original gravity, bottle conditioned, heavily hopped, and high in acidity. It appealed only to connoisseurs. In 1943, Guinness bought E.J. and Burke, including its Long Island brewery, and in 1946, it decided it would brew the lower-hopped, less acidic extra stout in Long Island for the American market. However, this would not be the modern extra stout. Instead, the plan was to recreate in Long Island the extra stout as it had been brewed in Dublin before the First World War at the same high gravity as foreign extra stout, but with a lower hop rate and less acidity. The Long Island Brewery began producing this retro extra stout in 1948, tweaking the brew slightly the following year to be even more like foreign extra stout. Sales of Guinness in the United States doubled to 16,000 barrels a year, but this was barely half of the 30,000 barrels a year needed for the brewery to cover its operating costs. The problem was a taste profile that just did not match the American mass market in the late 1940s, which liked its beer cold and pale. The Long Island Brewery closed in 1954. Meanwhile, in Britain, Guinness was trying to improve the market for draft stout by putting the beer into metal containers. The traditional way to serve Guinness, porter, or stout was from two separate casks, known as the high cask and the low cask. For the high version, stout was racked into an especially strong cask and left for 24 hours. Then it was blended with a quantity of unfermented wort and yeast, which kicked off a new fermentation. Ten days later, a foamy, creamy beer with considerable carbon dioxide condition was a result. When delivered to pubs, the high cask was placed on a stillage above the low cask, which contained older, flatter beer. Publicans would fill a glass three-quarters with the beer from the high cask and then top it up from the low cask with the flatter beer to achieve, when everything settled, the classic black pint with the tight white head. Guinness had used white American oak to make its casks. However, imports to Ireland of oak for making new casks stopped at the beginning of World War II, and even after the end of the war, foreign exchange problems meant a lack of dollars to buy supplies from the United States. Thus, in 1946, the brewery began experimenting with putting stout in casks made of steel. Publicans and drinkers quickly found that the steel containers, manufactured in Germany and nicknamed by pubgoers Iron Lungs, after the mechanical devices used to assist polio victims to breathe, delivered a more consistent, creamier pint with a longer-lasting head than the wooden cask, and the Dublin drinking fraternity began to ask for a pint from the lung. Guinness recognized that serving stout from metal containers was the way forward, but the high cask and low cask method, even with steel cask, was still awkward. A team at Park Royal in London, led by a man called Michael Ash, worked for four years on the problem. They eventually realized that the way to get the same creamy head that so delighted drinkers of Guinness, served up the traditional way, was to use nitrogen pressure, which produced tinier, more long-lasting bubbles in the beer, with just enough carbon dioxide to give it some bite. The result, launched in 1959, was the Easy Serve system, a double chamber aluminum keg with the piston gases in the top and stout in the bottom. 
With tweaks and improvements, the system invented by Michael Ash is still the way Guinness Draft is served today. It was also the first of what became a new category of nitro beers. At the same time, Guinness was developing technology that would enable its other popular variation to be brewed and consumed more widely. The flavor of foreign extra stout was originally down to its long maturation, which let Britannomyces yeasts and lactic bacteria give the beer an estery tartness that drinkers found highly refreshing. However, that took a year or more of storage in giant wooden vats and time is money. Two Dublin brewers invented a method of concentrating the matured beer so that a small quantity could be added to freshly brewed stout to give it all the flavor of beer that had spent 12 months in a deep, cool cellar. Eventually, Guinness realized that highly concentrated Guinness flavor extract could be added to any beer, even a pale lager, to turn it into something indistinguishable from long-matured foreign extra stout. In the 1960s, the company opened a brewery in Nigeria, which had long been one of the biggest markets for Guinness, and shipped out extract from Dublin to be added to pale beer brewed there to create a foreign extra stout for the Nigeria market. It was highly successful and eventually helped Guinness expand overseas. With the help of the brewery's innovative process, Guinness is now brewed in 49 different countries. Through all of those technological changes, however, Guinness's emphasis has always been on delivering great taste to consumers as much as, or more than, the money-saving tactics used to cut corners that seem to characterize other brewing giants. For that, Guinness, which is now part of a giant beverage conglomerate, Diageo, still earns some kudos. Brooklyn Brewery founder Steve Hindy said, Of all the mass-marketed beers in the world, I think Guinness is the one beer most respected by American craft brewers. Its understated marketing and commitment to flavor, quality, and presentation have been an inspiration for craft brewers. It is possible Arthur Guinness would not recognize the beer sold in his name as a descendant of his original porter. He would be astonished to discover, for example, that brown malt is no longer mashed with pale malt, but Guinness Stout starts off as a purely pale wort, and the color comes from roasted barley boiled separately, with this black extract added at the kettle stage. But he would enjoy the creamy head and the touches of coffee and chocolate that can be found in the depths of draft Guinness, and he would probably be fascinated by the surge and settle of the nitrogen-powered pour. Today, the company is finding that, with so many beer drinkers constantly looking for something new, having one brand, no matter how legendary and entrenched, is not necessarily enough. It's introduced new lines, bringing back a beer called West Indies Porter, making a milk stout, and dabbling in IPAs. However, without a doubt, Guinness has been the gateway stout for many drinkers, their first experience of the dark side of beer, and still represents, in many eyes, the platonic ideal of a dry stout. There can be no brewer in the world who brews a stout and does not think somewhere in the back of their mind, how does this compare to Guinness? Hello, this is Charlissa Megan, known as Truth Is. And I'm her trusty sidekick, Eva Knutson. And, and we, we are, are the Sound Hunters. Hunters. 
Join us on Wednesday nights from 7 to 9 p.m. as we dig through our old mixtape collections and share our favorite eclectic musical finds. That's The Sound Hunters on Wednesday nights from 7 to 9 p.m. right here on KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna. Hello and welcome back to Drinking on the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Bill Howell, here on KDLL 91.9 FM Kenai Soldatna. Up next, we've got Rhonda Langley, the brewer of Growler Bay Brewing in Valdez. Rhonda, how are you doing this fine day? Well, I'm doing great, Bill. Uh, thanks again for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's raining like usual here in Valdez, so <laughs> things are about right. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. So, uh, again, you guys have been open for two years now? That's correct. Two years. Two years. Uh, we opened at the very end of 2020 in November. Okay. Not probably the best time in the world for uh, opening a brewery. That's correct. It was a really rough, uh, as far as timing was concerned, we really weren't on on that um, with COVID and whatnot. So, but you know, you kind of have to get open and do your best. And so that's kind of what we did. And I opened um, on the pilot system that we have, which is a Blickman 10 gallon uh, system. So a third barrel basically. Um, And if, believe it or not, um, with how things have been with COVID, uh, we are still running on our pilot system, um, but we're getting really close to being able to upgrade to our three-barrel system, which will be 93 gallons at a time. So that's going to be a huge jump. That definitely will. Is that from uh, Stouts and Kettles? That's right. Yeah, Bill, okay. It is. Stout drinks. Yep. And um, so that's where we're we were hoping to already be on those, but as life has it, it throws some uh, loops and turns in your in the in the plan sometimes, as as they say. So we kind of had to throw our business plan to the side and just get started on that pilot system. Um, and then we tried to obviously move into the the uh, three barrel system, but oh man, we had some real bad luck there. Uh, we found out that it, our mastin had a hole in it, a little wow. hole in it. So, so that really uh, threw out a lot of time because it was really hard to uh, get that fixed. It took a lot of time. The company was great. Shout out to Stout Tanks. Um, and also, I want to really give a shout out to AK Custom Fab, uh, Wayne Sutton and Kai out of there. That facility saved the day. They uh, were able to come in and uh, weld our tank. Well, good. I'm glad that you got it taken care of. So looking ahead, what do you think the time frame is for when you're going to shift? uh, You'll have your your new three-barrel online. Well, that's really exciting. Currently, what we're working on right now is putting all the uh, insulation up on our, with our glycol units up on the uh, copper. So that's what's going on actually today. Um, Paul is over there. He's my husband, and he also helps with the brewery as well, and he's over there putting that on right now. So I'm hoping we get that running in the next couple weeks, um, and just uh, hopefully by the summer we'll be up rolling with three barrels, and I'll be able to add more hours because right now we're open every first Friday and every Saturday is what I am able to do on 10 gallons. And sometimes I run out of beer and I can't even open one of those days. So, yeah, that's always the the problem. Seems to be you never 
Most people just never have quite enough system. They always wish they had one the next size yeah. up. So Oh, that's but, so true. That's so true. Everyone and here, you know, I knew this wasn't the way to start, you know. I know I'm working harder uh than because I'm brewing such small batches, I have to brew more often. So I'm brewing all the time, anytime I can, anytime I have an empty tank on my small system, I fill it up and uh keep moving forward, you know, just trying to get that bigger system going and keep the excitement about the brewery up and going uh, every Saturday. Um, and so it's been really filling my heart and I just enjoy brewing so much. You know, it's just, it's just a fire inside of me that uh, I, I'm glad that I, I'm still here to talk to you. So uh, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what uh, your brew, your beers that you're brewing, you have any flagships or any regulars that you keep on or what do you, what have you been brewing? <laughs> Sure, sure. You know, uh, the truth of the matter with uh, what I'm brewing on, I have <clears throat> I have to brew ales most often. So I can't brew a lot of lagers um, right now because it, tanks, it takes up the tank a little bit too long. So I haven't been able to do too many of those. I've just done a few. But so I, some of my main beers that people like um, that I do, but I try to brew different beers because people want variety. But the ones I, I have been doing, I've I do what's called a German blonde ale. I call it Brian's Batch, which is dedicated to a friend of ours who passed away. Um, and he loved this beer. And uh, it's just a, a kind of a mix between a Halis and a uh, blonde. And so it's got this German malt and hops, and it's a clean ale yeast at low temps. And it makes a light, refreshing beer that people tend to come to pretty often. That's a big seller. Um, and then, of course, coming up here, we got spruce tips. And, you know, I, I feel like that's just a, a big Alaska, a breweries in Alaska, just spruce tips. People love them. Um, and we also have a spruce tip blonde that we will be coming out with that people tend to love this, coming up here not far along, hopefully. Um, and then coming up this weekend, we'll have a red IPA coming out. Uh, it's, we call it the Rookery Red IPA. And I... Uh, do some different hopping techniques on this to really help the hops come out and stand out as well as I use Kvike yeast, which had some insanely tropical and fruity notes. And so I'm excited about uh, that beer coming out. Sounds great. So, uh, you know, this is the end of uh, Alaska beer week. Are you doing anything for it or have you had a chance to celebrate at all? You know, um, I have, you know, I'm always trying to my best to support the breweries in Alaska, you know, and uh, the Brewers Guild. Unfortunately, being so small, I haven't been able to really jump on some of these awesome uh, things that go on in the state. Um, but I do try my best to be part of things. Um, like we had Oktoberfest here this last year, and so I tried my best to just be part of that scene, and I opened an extra day, which certainly made it harder for some of the days later to be open but you know i just try my best to be part of of the local community the beer community and i know that from here there's only growth you know i can i'm, I'm hoping to add all friday saturdays have beers to go you know all the things that we hope uh, to get to eventually but as as far as specifically having something for beer week unfortunately i didn't have uh, something come out or release during that time so uh so Right now, it's uh, Saturdays of the day if uh, people are in Valdez that they should be checking you out, right? That's right. Yeah, Saturdays, 4 to 8, 
and every first Friday for art, we have, we try to get that going, um, at four to eight as well. And, uh, you know, we tried when we first opened doing all Friday, Saturdays, but I couldn't keep those hours. I ran out of beer too quickly with just 10 gallons at a time, but I always try to have five beers on tap. I do seltzers now as well. I have three of those. Uh, I have, uh, some non-alcoholic sodas available. So I really am trying to, uh, do a little bit of everything for everybody and make it a real nice space. People are excited. You know, people love to talk about beer when they come in and it, it's just my favorite night of the week, Saturday. So uh, how many taps do you have in your tap room? You said you typically have five beers on and seltzers. So how many taps total do you have? Yes. See, I can have a total of uh, seven beers and three seltzers and one soda right now. Um, but right now, this coming weekend, I'll have six beers on tap um, and three seltzers. So, and then we're going to, we have room to uh, grow. We, we have a whole nother section where we can add some taps. And that's, that's always been in our future, our mind with this brewery. And uh, that's one thing about this brewery. It's not your typical brewery. It's not a warehouse style. This is located in an old uh, historical building, three floors, uh, we're in the basement. The brewery's in the basement. People call me the, the basement brewer. <laughs> so that's kind of my nickname. Um, and then the tap room's on the first floor, and then we have an attic, and that's kind of where the storage is and my um, my desk and things, which it, it's definitely a really cool building, and it's all right. Sounds very, very interesting. How big, uh, how many seats is your tap room? How many folks can you have in there at once, according to the fire uh, marshal? Of course, of course. Uh, it, each floor is 750 square feet, and we are allowed to have 39 patrons in the tap room floor. Okay. But we can. We also have a deck, and we also, of course, have seating downstairs where the brewery is, a little bit of seating right down there as well. So we try our best. And then, of course, in the summer, we have been, uh, through AMCO, we have some outdoor seating that we're working on uh, getting that up. We had it last summer, but we're trying to improve it and make it a little bit more comfortable for people this year. Sounds great. Sounds great. So uh, obviously you're looking to expand your, uh, your, your brew house. Anything else uh, in the near future that you've got coming up? Any uh, exciting new releases or any collaborations yeah, you know, you're doing with anybody or anything like that? Well, I, I sure hope to do some collaborations in the future. We, we have had a, uh, uh, a few people reach out to do some collab beers. I'm hoping that'll come. But also, you know, I can't wait to brew um, some of these loggers that I've been wanting to brew for a long time. And I'll, I'll get those going on the bigger system almost probably right away so they can kind of sit and do their thing and then keep some of the others, of course, going. And I'll, um, so yeah, you know, there's the bike, fat bike bash coming up um, in March. I believe it is. And then there's the ice climbing festival coming up in February. So we hope to be involved with both those awesome things happening here in Valdez. And I hope people from around the state come, come to Valdez and check, check these things out because it's a beautiful place here and there's a lot to do outdoors and a couple breweries to come to as well. It's been a long time since I was last in Valdez, but I keep, my wife and I keep saying, yeah, we need to get back to Valdez. We haven't been there in so long. So uh, you never know. I might pop in one day and just on a Saturday and just walk in and say, hey, how's it going? 
Oh, I hope. And if you're not here on Saturday, you just call me up and we'll get you in anyway. Okay, sounds great. Well, hey, Rhonda, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and update us. And, uh, you know, uh, fingers crossed that uh, everything goes great with your your bringing your three-barrel system online. I know you're really going to be... Uh, you're going to be happy to be able to make uh, six times as much beer with uh, with uh, in this in one brew. Wow, that's going to be so different. It'll definitely open up some time for me to do some of the other things I want to do. And uh, but I can't wait. So I really appreciate uh, you talking to me. And, and thanks again. No, no problem. And hey, when you uh, you have any news, don't forget to let us know. Thanks again. Oh, I will do. Thank you. Let's make good things happen on the Kenai Peninsula. Nonprofit organizations need your help this year more than ever. When filing for your permanent fund dividend, support local nonprofits that make a difference right here in our community. Pick, click, give to the Kenai Watershed Forum, Central Peninsula Health Foundation, Hospice of the Central Peninsula, Kenai Peninsula Food Bank, Love, Inc., Lee Shore Center, Boys and Girls Club of the Kenai Peninsula, and Nikiski Senior Center. Well, that's it for this month's Drinking on the Last Frontier. We hope you enjoyed the show. This month's final beer quote is from the great Hunter S. Thompson, father of gonzo journalism. He said, good people drink good beer. And I have found that to be true. Until next time, cheers. Be the worst. Cleanse your palate before you quench your thirst.